As we've been continuing through the book of James, as a way of reminder, James is the uh, half-brother of Jesus, uh, got to grow up with Jesus. If you had an older brother and it was Jesus, uh, I'm sure you would have, at least at some point in time, gotten tired of hearing, why can't you be a little bit more like Jesus? And uh, one of the ways I'm sure Jesus stood out amongst his siblings is with his words. And so I'm sure James has in his mind uh, the clarity through contrast. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever thought you were good at something, uh, and then you went and you, you did that thing with somebody else, and they were way better. <laughs> and you're like, well, maybe I'm not that great at that. <laughs> After all, um, the, the siblings of Jesus uh, must have never thought they were great with their words. Uh, and James is bringing that to bear, not just uh, on himself, but on all believers everywhere, um, because of how he describes uh, what Art had in his title, if you have your bulletin, the tongue, tameable or untamable? That is the question. Um, and I took a different approach and I didn't see that until this morning. So my title, which is up there, is uh, Good Teachers Practice What They Preach. Uh, but they go hand in hand. Uh, a, a preacher uses his words and needs his tongue to be tamed. Um, but notice how he begins with a, an unusual exhortation, if you would, of uh, a body of believers. Again, he's writing to Christians, uh, a group of Christians, and uh, they're, they're constantly called brethren, uh, and here is no exception. In this chapter, they're called brethren multiple times. Uh, so we know he's continuing to think about and talk to people he considers brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, in the last chapter, uh, the section right before this one, he was talking to people who thought of themselves as genuine believers who had a profession of faith without a practice of faith. And he was calling them to consider whether or not they had a genuine walk with the Lord if there was no walking with the Lord happening. If all they had was a sound theology without a sound uh, walking out of that theology, a practical application of it, if it was just knowledge, then it wasn't helping or changing anything. Uh, it wasn't helping them, it wasn't helping anybody else. And I think he, he has the same people in mind when he starts here in James uh, chapter 3, when he says there in verse 1, my brethren, let, let not many of you become teachers. Again, uh, sometimes, uh, especially uh, when we're a little younger in the faith, when, when we have something that we know and we're super confident and we're super excited about it, you know, we've been saved for like five hours and we're out, you know, telling everybody about the you know, five hours of knowledge of Jesus that we have. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not very mature in the faith yet. Uh, and what he is discouraging here um, isn't necessarily sharing what we do know, um, but sharing what we know without practicing also what we know. And he's going to tease that out uh, through this whole chapter of the disparity between the two, which is not unlike uh, what we learned in chapter two, where you talked about, uh, you know these things, but you're not you're not doing any of them. You, you talk about this knowledge of God and you're orthodox in what you say, uh, but you're not orthodox in how you live. And here, uh, he's addressing that person who knows all of those things, but is not doing any of those things. Uh, I think he kind of ties a bow on it at the very end of chapter three. If you uh, scroll down with me to verse 18 real quick, I want you to notice uh, that I think he's talking about the same kind of person who ought to be a teacher in verse 18. He says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, 
Um, so the idea of sowing is where it's not you know, what your grandma does with you know, some ripped jeans. It's planting seeds into a ground where you're taking what you have and depositing it into somebody else, <laughs> uh, something you have, so that it will be cultivated in that person so it will grow. Um, but it's a person whose life is marked by fruitful righteousness in their life. And if you think about how fruit works in our own world, like the, the apple trees, they have apples, but those apples have seeds in them so that more apple trees can be made, <laughs> right? You take that apple and you <laughs> plunk the whole thing in the ground. Naturally, an apple tree is gonna come out of that, but only a healthy and fruitful apple tree is going to make fruit <laughs> that is going to be helpful to make more apple trees. And here he's going to describe uh, the kind of person who thinks they are ready to deposit into somebody else something they don't even have yet themselves. And he's going to use one aspect of our life to draw that out and it's our words. And uh, we'll, we'll discover the reason for that here in a minute, um, but my, my first main point is our words reveal that we are not perfect. Our words reveal that we are not perfect. Um, he says this in verses one and two, he says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many things. And if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Um, what he's saying there at the end of verse two is not that we are perfect because we have you know, conquered our, our own mouth. He's using that as evidence against us. <laughs> um, there's a phrase in verse two, the very first sentence in verse two. I, I often uh, point this out in counseling situations or in uh, conversations with uh, unbelievers, uh, let alone believers, uh, but if you notice with me, the first sentence of verse two, he says, uh, for we all stumble in many things. And then there's an interesting piece of punctuation. It's a period. That means it's the end of the sentence. <laughs> that means we all stumble in many things. What, what James is trying to say here, and he says we, what he's trying to say here is that James, when he's thinking about himself, stumbles in many things. James is including himself. James is talking to brethren. So he's, he's talking about me, but he's also talking about you. We all stumble in many things, and then there's no comma. There's no qualification to that statement. We all stumble in many things. It goes hand in hand with the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Part of that prayer was for food, so daily bread, we thank the Lord for the daily bread, but also forgive us our debts, part of the daily prayer. And depending on how often you eat, maybe three times a day is the right time, <laughs> the right amount of times we ought to be asking for forgiveness and repenting because we all stumble in many things, uh, which is a very broad statement of way of, uh, of putting it, but the, the evidence and, and the, uh, the place where he's gonna spend his time is with regard to our words. And this is the reason why he tells us at the very beginning there in verse one, the prohibition, let not many of you become teachers. Now, uh, he's not talking about not let any of us become teachers. Otherwise, what I would be doing is against scripture right now. Uh, he, he just says not many, which means there's probably a propensity for uh, some of us to want to be in that role of teacher when we ought not to be in that role of teacher. And he's gonna help us clarify that. 
Uh, the Bible is clear that God has given to the church pastors and teachers. Uh, a, a pastor and a teacher, uh, a pastor like our pastor, Pastor Art, is a gift to the church. Uh, I would not be here, we <laughs> would not be here, this building would not be here if God hadn't given to Calvary Chapel Valley Springs Pastor Art. That's how scripture views it, is not that God gives a congregation to a pastor, but God gives a congregation a pastor, a teacher, someone to teach them as a gift. And the purpose of that teacher, according to Ephesians chapter 4, where it describes the pastor as a gift to the fellowship of believers, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, we read, And he, speaking of God, himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So it's the, the teacher's job, it's the pastor's job uh, to sow in peace the fruits of righteousness into everybody around. And if you read that um, the way I read it, that the, it's the, the teacher's job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, uh, that puts the teacher outside of the work of the ministry in, in one sense, that there's ministry that he's not supposed to do, that the pastor is supposed to equip the saints to do, uh, which means I'm encouraging the kids often in children's ministry to uh, honor the Lord by honoring their mother and father, that I'm encouraging those who have jobs to work as unto the Lord in their jobs, that I'm uh, exhorting husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I'm exhorting wives to uh, submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. These are all ways in which we walk in obedience to the Lord um, that we may not think of as um, ministry, but it's, it's ministry. Uh, you can't represent Christ at CVS quite like I can at CVS because God gave me the job at CVS. I can't represent Christ in your place of work or in your own home uh, quite like you can. God hasn't called me to. God's called me to equip you to do that work <laughs> by explaining to you uh, God's standard and God's word uh, and encouraging you uh, through that. But God is the one who's given us, uh, as the body of Christ, teachers. Um, but those teachers uh, are supposed to know something, according to verse 1, that they, they, there are not to be many of them because we shall receive a stricter judgment. There's a higher standard, if you would, uh, for teachers. Uh, and this is not new information. Uh, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, uh, we're instructed to obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Uh, there was a, a pastor back in the day uh, by the name of uh, Charles Spurgeon, and uh, before the time of microphones, he was preaching to a few thousand. Um, uh, it, he has a book called Lectures to My Students, and there's a chapter in there that disqualifies me for ministry uh, because you're supposed to have a barrel chest so that you could share loudly and clearly for everybody to hear. Uh, luckily, technology has removed that requirement for me in particular, um, but even in my own house, my wife is like, what? I can't hear you. <laughs> I'm like, shimmer, 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 shimmer. <laughs> That's all I heard. <laughs> but the, the higher standard uh, was communicated to uh, uh, another pastor, because this uh, Spurgeon, even as a young man, he was in his young 20s preaching to thousands. This other pastor came from another town. He's, he's like, you know, I just, I don't have that many people. And he's like, well, how many people are you ministering to? And he's like, I, I'm, you know, I'm preaching to about, you know, 20 or 30 people. And Spurgeon turned and looked to him and said, that sounds like that would be enough to give an account of on the day of judgment. 
And all of a sudden, I don't want anybody. <laughs> this is Pastor Archchurch. <laughs> right? The, in the same way with our own kids, there's an accountability that God has given us, a stewardship. God has given pastors stewardships, but there's an accountability that's uh, equal to that stewardship. And so there's a stricter judgment. Uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, verse uh, 48, he says, For uh, everyone to whom much is given, from much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so uh, with pastors and uh, the requirements that God has on them, they are not uh, free to do whatever they want or say whatever they want or live however they want. Uh, there is a requirement that God has, a standard to which um, the body of Christ is to hold the pastor, but then also a standard to which God himself will one day hold that pastor too. And those standards are in scripture. Uh, in First Timothy chapter 3, uh, those standards are there, verses 1 through 7, the qualifications of an elder, uh, and only one of them has to do with the ability to teach. All the rest have to do with the character of his life. Uh, and sometimes, and this is what James is going to be addressing in particular, uh, there can be the misconception or the misunderstanding that all you need to do to be a, a good pastor is to be a clear teacher and that nothing else matters. Uh, and it would seem from Scripture that teaching, being able to be a clear communicator, is certainly a part of it. Uh, but that if you were to do it by percentage, it's a very small part. Uh, that having a godly life is far and away much more significant and important uh, that you would be able to say, like the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. If the, the pastor or teacher of a church that you go to someday uh, is not able to say that because of the kind of life they are living, uh, that's not a place you want to be. That's not a teacher you want to listen to uh, because even if their theology is sound, uh, the, the life and the example that they are living is not. And that's the standard of scripture, is that there's a godly life that is um, alongside of godly teaching. But the point he's making here that he wants us to understand um, at the end there in verse 2 is that uh, we have an... Uh, inability to be perfect before the Lord. And that should be painfully clear by our inability to always say the right thing or not say the right thing <laughs> at the right time. Uh, bridling our tongue. Again, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Uh, and there are no perfect men. Only Jesus was the perfect man. So Jesus is not in my, any, anybody category. He's in his own category in my mind. But every other man uh, is, is not going to be able to nail this. And there's a, a very clear reason why, as we'll see. Um, verses 3 through 12, he develops his point. The inconsistency of our words reveal the inconsistencies in our heart. The inconsistency in our words reveal an inconsistency in our own hearts, uh, which is... Uh, the greater problem. Notice what he says there in verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouth, mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at ships. Uh, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, 
uh, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little, a little fire kindles. So even though the tongue is little in size, it is powerful in its effect. The tongue is little in size, but powerful in its effect. Um, he gives us three little examples uh, that have powerful uh, effects. Uh, a bit in a horse's mouth is so small that they call it a bit. It's just, just a little piece of metal that goes right in the horse's mouth. And with it, you can turn the whole horse whatever direction you want it to go. Uh, and it gives you power over a huge animal, um, but it's just a small piece of hardware. If you don't have that small piece of hardware, you're gonna be going for a ride wherever that horse wants to go. Uh, but that small little bit, the control over the mouth, uh, gives you the ability uh, to allow that whole horse to obey you, and you're allowed to turn the whole body wherever you want to. Uh, in the same way, a very small rudder on a boat, uh, and if you've ever seen the proportions of those things, like even our very large shipping containers, the rudders on them compared to the rest of the ship, very small. Uh, but the effect that they have is tremendous. Right, you can turn the whole ship with just that one little rudder, wherever the pilot wants it to go. The last little thing that he talks about is something we talk about every summer here in California, uh, a little fire. It's just a little fire. <laughs> uh, can burn up a whole forest. And we see that almost every year here in California. Uh, and it doesn't take much. Uh, sometimes these things are started on purpose. Sometimes they're, it's just a cigarette out the window. And it just consumes all of this area. And it's something that's so small. And yet the impact is outweighed uh, a hundredfold. The way he summarizes it there in verse five at the beginning, he says, even so, the tongue is a little member yet boasts great things. Our tongue tells us a lot about our own hearts and the way he describes the, the tongue is not encouraging as to the contents of our heart. Notice how he describes it there in verse six. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Can you uh, say that a little bit more forcefully? I didn't quite understand what you're trying to say here. <laughs> like, these are not very encouraging words you're telling me right now. It's like, why, why, are, you, why are you trying to be so clear? And the, the point he's making is that uh, in the same way that there's a, a fire that, you know, like we see from time to time, even in our own communities, uh, what it leaves behind is just ashes. It consumes and it destroys. And... He, he describes that our tongue, how it is set among us, or uh, it's so set among our members, uh, the effect that it has on the rest of us is that it defiles the whole body, makes the whole thing uh, unpalatable. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus uh, ha having a conversation with his disciples about eating with unwashed hands, and he's not talking about not washing your hands at all. He was talking about washing your hands in a ceremonial way and so that you would be clean and acceptable and the disciples didn't do it quite that way, and they had clean hands, but they were eating, and the Pharisees of the day were like, why are your disciples eating with unwashed hands? You're defiling yourself this way. And Jesus responded with, you know, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what come out, comes out of the mouth. 
And luckily for us, his disciples were like, I don't get it. <laughs> Can you explain that to us? And this is Jesus' explanation of that. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 18 through 20. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. This is exactly what James is talking about. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, uh, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. So it's not, necess not necessarily a mouth problem that we have. If it was a mouth problem, it, might, it may be solvable by us. Unfortunately, the mouth problem is just uh, a symptom of the actual issue. It's much deeper. It's a heart issue. The, the reason why bad things come out of our mouth is because we have bad things in our heart. Uh, just like if uh, I was walking around with a big cup uh, you know, full of Mountain Dew and I was walking around and somebody bumped into me and all of that Mountain Dew went all over both of us, uh, what came out of the cup was always in there. <laughs> uh, if I uh, wanted to make sure that I never accidentally spilt Mountain Dew on anybody, I'd have to empty out the cup. <laughs> if it was a completely empty cup, no matter how hard you bumped me, <laughs> how hard you shook me up, you could take me by my ankles and hold me upside down and no Mountain Dew would still come out of that cup because it's not in there. It's not in there to come out. But in the same way, uh, sometimes I hear, especially in my own house with my own kids, uh, you made me angry. They just bumped the cup hard enough for the anger to come out. You made me say whatever. They just bumped the cup hard enough for whatever it was to come out. I'm not sure if you've ever been surprised at what's come out of your own cup. I have. I was like, wow, I didn't know that was in there. Uh, but Lord, I need you to not fix you know, the top of my cup. I don't need you to make it a sippy cup. <laughs> I need you to change the contents of the cup. The issue of the tongue is not really an issue of the tongue. It's an issue of the heart. Our words defile the outside of us because the inside of us is already defiled. It's already yucky. This is why, uh, even though many other things in the world we have learned to tame, the tongue is not one of them. Uh, notice what he says there in verses 7 through 11. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Uh, we go to zoos and, you know, theme parks sometimes and we see dolphins jumping out of the water. We see, you know, people wrestling alligators or putting their head in a lion and smiles. And it's like, that seems foolish, but okay, more power to you. It's like, we've tamed a lot of these things, uh, but uh, to tame a tongue requires a changing of the heart. And that's not anything any man can do. That takes the work of God, which is why no man can tame the tongue. And he points out an inconsistency that he sees that ought not to be. Uh, notice there uh, in verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been, uh, who have been made in the similitude of God. Uh, so here's the picture. We're at church. We're praising the Lord, we're leaving the parking lot after church, and then we're cursing somebody who cut us off. <laughs> and that person was made in the image of God. Uh, I was talking uh, with my wife earlier this week about um, the relationship between loving the Lord 
and loving people and how those are connected and how that works. And, uh, you know, the first is loving the Lord and the second is like it is loving people. Um, but the way I, I was talking to her about it and uh, thinking through what that looks like, it would be like if we invited somebody over to our house and then I'll be like, oh, we love you guys so much. And they went around smacking my kids and hitting them and beating them up. And I'm like, I don't think you love me. Because <laughs> these little ones are made in my image. <laughs> and you're not treating them all that nice. And I love them a lot. <laughs> and you don't love the ones I love. And if you say that you love me and then you're beating up my kids, I might question your love <laughs> for me. <laughs> like, Does that seem reasonable? And in the same way, uh, our love of one another and even the lost world around us, God so loved the world, the lost world, uh, that even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And there's a love of God that sometimes comes pretty easy, right? Lord ever bless you with some pretty awesome things. You're like, praise the Lord for that. Even if it's something simple, like you're going to Costco and you get a front row parking lot spot, Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's something small, but I don't have to walk crazy distance with all this Costco stuff. Or, you know, you're driving and you're almost out of gas and you look up and it's the cheapest gas you've seen in a while and you're like, praise the Lord, <laughs> something small, right? And we can, sometimes it can be very easy to, to love the Lord, uh, but also sometimes it can be very hard to love those whom the Lord loves. And the inconsistency that comes out of our mouth uh, sometimes we describe uh, those kinds of words, the, the bitter words uh, in our modern vernacular as salty, salty words. Uh, he actually describes it as that uh, later on uh, where coming out of the same uh, mouth at the end there of verse 12, thus no spring can yield both salty, uh, salt water and fresh water. There's an inconsistency of what's coming out. Um, if there was a well that you drilled and out of it came fresh water, and you're like, sweet, I have a well for my house. And then all of a sudden it was salt water, and all of a sudden it was fresh water, and all of a sudden it was like, this is not going to be useful. <laughs> if I don't know what's going to come out of this thing, that's not helpful. And so he says, with our mouth, the inconsistencies that he sees is blessings and cursings, both fresh words, words that bring life, and bitter words and salty words um, that don't bring life. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. Our words ought to be consistent, not just with each other, but our words ought to be consistent with God's heart. The way he describes all of this mess there at the end of verse 10, it says, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. He's looking at it, he's hearing it, and he's like, no. Um, again, I'd imagine him growing up with Jesus <laughs> and hearing his own words that, have you ever done this where you've said something or done, done something and immediately you're like, shouldn't have done that, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. And, or you're around, like maybe this happened to you at work, uh, this has happened to me at work a few times where I'm trying to train somebody on how to do something and uh, they do something that would seem to be logical uh, it seemed to make sense, but it's going to make the situation 10 times worse. <laughs> and like, you're like, no, and then they just go and do it anyway. Um, happens sometimes with kids, like you see them picking up something on the ground, they're about to put it in your mouth, and you're like, no, that's yucky, don't, don't do that. He's looking at this situation, and he has that same kind of heart's cry. These things, no, 
they ought not to be. The benefit of it, though, the benefit of our words is that we can hear them and we can see what's coming out of our heart because sometimes our heart is even a mystery to ourselves. Jesus, when he was talking to some Pharisees, uh, he said uh, to them, uh, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the question becomes is, how do we change the contents of our heart <laughs> if we want to fix the words coming out of our mouth? Uh, well, that's not something anybody can do on their own. Uh, but that is something that God specializes in. God does change our hearts. Uh, he changes our view on our own heart. I'm not sure what your journey to the Lord was like. Um, it's different for everybody. Uh, but there are some who, when they came to the Lord um, and gave their life to the Lord, they thought the Lord was getting a pretty good deal. God, you've got a deal in me. I'm, I'm pretty awesome, and uh, you're pretty blessed to have me. <laughs> uh, there's a journey ahead of that person <laughs> uh, called uh, humility, and we're all on that road in a, a variety of ways. And some of us on the other end of the spectrum are like, I don't even know if I can be saved. I don't even know if the Lord wants me or wants to use me. Uh, and the answer is, is neither one of those things. Is uh, we, we are useless on our own, but we are very useful in his hands. The Bible says for each one of us to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Uh, so in the same way that you can have an instrument that's built to do something like a guitar, and the instrument uh, in my hands may not sound that great, but you put it in Teresa's hands or Pastor Art's hands, and it's like, wow, is that what it's supposed to sound like? You know, the world will play you, uh, but it's not the way that God intended. Uh, God has a, a purpose and a plan for your life that is uh, informed by the ways that he's gifted you. Um, but you need to be in his hands uh, and not your own. Uh, and the evidence that God is at work, my last point, the evidence God is at work in our hearts will be seen in our conduct. And that's, that's exactly what he turns to, but he's going to help us understand the difference between what we're bringing into the relationship that needs to go and what God's bringing in the relationship that needs to stay. He's going to help us to understand because sometimes we, don't, we, we can't understand. We need God's word to divide between the good and the bad in our life, to divide between the good and the bad intentions of our own hearts. Uh, it's not clear to us. We're an emotional driven mess apart from the Lord. And even with the Lord, it's kind of sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right? Notice how he describes it here on, in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So he sets the standard. Again, he asks a question that would have probably perked the ears of the, first, uh, of the person he was talking about in verse 1. In verse 1, he was like, let there not be many teachers among you. And some people, when they heard that, were offended. Well, I want to be a teacher. The same person he's talking to here in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? That person would have been like, pick me. <laughs> I am wise and understanding. And he's going to help us define what wise and understanding looks like, not from our perspective, but from God's. In their own estimation of themselves, they are wise and understanding. Uh, in their own evaluation of themselves, they are wise and understanding. But the quality of your conduct needs to match God's character, if that statement is true. 
he says, let them show by good conduct. Again, if you were here just a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, a living faith versus a dead faith, a living faith is a faith that actually does things, just like a living person does something. Uh, we talked about how God raised Lazarus up from the dead, and anything he did after that point was only possible because God did something first. <laughs> God raised him from the dead, and even the dishes that he did, uh, his wife could be like, praise the Lord, he did dishes. <laughs> because, you know, a dead person doesn't do much, even if it's something small. Uh, all the praise and glory would go to the Lord. Um, but uh, wisdom that is from God will be consistent with the character of God. So the wisdom that is actually from God is going to be consistent with the character of God. And this is where our own hearts can deceive us. And he gets right into it in verse uh, 14 through 16. What worldly wisdom looks like what it feels like, what it sounds like. Verses 14 through 16, again, it says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where, self, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Notice his description uh, in verse 14, the beginning part there, bitter envy and self-seeking. Those are some, some powerful adjectives right there. I'm not sure if in our own thinking we think about ourselves in those ways or if we're thinking about, oh, this person needs to hear this and what's motivating it is bitterness and envy and self-seeking. <laughs> uh, but those things will lie to you about it. Notice what he says uh, next after that, uh, do not boast and lie against the truth because we can have all of those attitudes and attributes, all of those things that he just said, we can be bitter, we can have envy and we can be self-seeking and we can lie to ourselves about those things. We can be like, this is righteous anger. <laughs> this is God at work in my heart. That, that's what he's saying. He's like, don't lie to yourself about this. Be honest with yourself about this. Are you angry about them getting the parking spot in front of Costco instead of you <laughs> because of your righteousness or your self-seeking. Notice the location of this issue though. Again, it's not an issue of our mouth. Uh, that's the spout from which it's being expressed. Uh, but verse uh, 14 again, he says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, uh, the Bible says, you know, our hearts are desperately wicked, and who can know it? Uh, Jeremiah uh, 17, verse 11, asks that question, who can know the, the desperate wickedness of our own hearts? Uh, and the Bible gives the answer. The answer is not you. <laughs> it's not me. Uh, it's the Lord. The Lord knows how bad our hearts are. So if we want to know what's going on in our heart, we have to ask the Lord. Lord, is this bitterness? Is this envy? Is this self-seeking? And the Lord's word is the thing that'll divide between the two. The Lord has the ability to do that, just in the same way that if we're having a physical heart issue, we can't physically see it. We go to a physician who can take a better look at our heart. Like, hey, this is what's actually going on in there, <laughs> right? Sometimes we need an outside perspective uh, to have the right perspective on it. The location of this issue is not an outside of us issue, it's an inside of us issue. Uh, the source of this wisdom that the uh, deception 
uh, lies about is it's not from above, it's earthly, it's sensual, and the one that struck me the most is demonic. It's in rebellion to God. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. All of those things that Jesus was tempted to do, to satisfy himself with bread when he was hungry, to be worshipped, to shortcut the plan of God, to, to do the thing that God wanted to, but in the way that God didn't ask him to. It's in rebellion to God. That's the source of the wisdom. The danger in all of this, again, is that deception piece. The, the danger of it is that this could be you and you think you're being godly. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Well, if that's, if that's the way of the world, if that's worldly wisdom, what does godly wisdom look like? What does it feel like? Where is it located? Uh, verse 17 through 18 tells us uh, what wisdom from God looks like. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice first the location, verse 17, that this wisdom, the wisdom that is from above. Did you know that God's wisdom is above your wisdom? Uh, this is a, a scriptural truth that God tell, tells us that his ways are above our ways. That shouldn't be surprising to us. Uh, and yet sometimes how we live is not in accordance to that. Uh, it'd be like if you go to your kids and they're like trying to do something that you've done a bazillion times before, so you know all the wrong ways of doing it, and you also know the few right ways of doing it. And you tell them, my ways are above your ways. And they're like, I don't know. I'm a teenager now, so I know. I know things. I know things you don't know. I had this conversation with some teenagers uh, a while back ago. I was a youth pastor for a while, and then I filled in every once in a while for Brian, and uh, we were going through the book of Proverbs. And I, I told them, like, how many of you think you know some things, a little, you understand things a little bit better than your parents? And they're like, they were honest. They're like, yes, I think I understand some things. I'm like, all right, now imagine in five years from now, are you going to know a little bit more? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll know more. I'm like, add another 10 years of that, are you going to know a little bit more? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you have kids. Are you going to know a little bit more? Well, yeah. And when those kids become teenagers, are they going to know more than you? No. <laughs> I just took them on a little journey to blow their mind. <laughs> Here's the thing. God was around before creation. He knows a thing or two about the contents of our hearts. And somehow... And in some ways, even as adults with teenage children, we act like teenagers in relationship to the Lord. Like, nope, this, this behavior is appropriate. <laughs> and God's looking at us like, don't boast and lie against the truth. Like, that's, those are words you say to teenagers. If you're a teenager here, your parents are just like you in this way, okay? <laughs> we need to humble ourselves before the Lord we need to acknowledge that his ways are above our ways. That when we look at something and we're like, I got it figured out, we should also figure that God has got a better perspective on it. Well, if his ways are above our ways, how do we find out what his ways are? Well, they don't stay above us. Uh, they've been given to us. 
And he describes what they're like there in verse 17. They're pure, they're peaceable, they're gentle, they're willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Uh, that's, that's a great description of God and his character. Because <laughs> God's wisdom is consistent with his character. And godly wisdom expressed in our life will also be consistent with God's character. The effect of that wisdom, not only do those with God's wisdom bear fruit, bear the fruit of righteousness themselves, but they also sow those seeds in peace. So they are at peace and they sow seeds that produce peace. We are promised in this world that we all have tribulations, but to be of good cheer because God has overcome the world, we have peace, not because things are at peace, but because we have the Prince of Peace in us and for us. So if your wisdom is self-centered, self-seeking, envying, and bitter, uh, it's not from above. But if it's looking like the character of God, peaceful and pure and gentle and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, it's from the Lord. We know what God's will is through his word. Uh, Rebecca and I are starting a journey uh, at the beginning of this year. Perhaps you joined us in this last year. This last year, Rebecca and I read through the Bible uh, in a year uh, using the uh, McCheney Bible reading plan where it takes you through four different passages a day. Um, a friend of mine just finished his fifth year of that in a row at my suggestion, and this is my first year doing it. And I was like, <laughs> I suggested something that I, I couldn't do myself just because reading is hard for me, and I finally found an audio Bible that will have these reading plans on them. So I, I listen to it, and I follow along. Um, but this year, uh, Rebecca and I are going through uh, the Bible in chronological order. Um, I have out in the foyer, if you want to join us on that journey, it's a reading through the Bible in a year plan. It's just uh, about three chapters a day on average. Um, starts in Genesis, which should not be too surprising if you know your biblical chronology. Um, and it kind of makes its way uh, through all of Scripture. And so um, if you want to join us, uh, the, the, the joy of going through Scripture isn't uh, just getting to know what God is saying and uh, having his wisdom bear on our lives. That is certainly a, a significant part of it. Um, but when we go through it together, uh, the Lord can be speaking the same things to us, and we can be speaking to one another about what the Lord is speaking to us. And we'll be like, yeah, I know, I read that too. Uh, this happened to us multiple times this year uh, when, like, we'll get, I, I read in the morning and I go off to work and Re Rebecca will get up in the morning and read before the kids get up and create chaos. And then we'll, I'll come home on my lunch and we're like, did you read that? And like, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and the cool part about that is that we're on the same page. Um, but this is an opportunity for us as a fellowship to be on the same page and be reading through scripture together. But this is in part allowing God to have a, a way to speak to us his wisdom uh, and give to us his ways, which are above our ways. It's, it's a, a way in which we acknowledge, God, your ways are above my ways, and how I'm demonstrating that to you is by giving you some of my time so you can give me some of your direction. And, and seeking from the Lord uh, that direction. You know, whatever is going on in my heart, I have a very short prayer sometimes before I start reading. It's like, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing with these five things. Will you help me? <laughs> like, I'll be reading through them. Like, oh, well, that's one of them. That's right there. The other ones, not, I haven't gotten anything on those. But, like, the Lord is faithful uh, to direct our steps with his word, to give us his wisdom that is from above. 
Um, but oftentimes that wisdom is given through his word. Uh, it's certainly empowered by his spirit. We can't just know his word and, and have what we need. Jesus told his disciples, wait for the power of the spirit to come upon you so that uh, you can do the things that I have asked you to do. Uh, but they had the word and then they had the, the power of the spirit working in them and through them. And I would encourage each one of us uh, to be uh, those who are hearing God's word. And if you would like uh, to join Rebecca and I in our journey together, there's no pressure for anybody to do it, but there's an opportunity for you to uh, pick up that paper and just follow along with us. Um, and we're going to be going through scripture in chronological order. It'll be the first time I've done it. And so if you want to join us for that, we would love for you to do that. Um, we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper this uh, morning as well. And uh, it's, it's so appropriate because the thing that God came to do uh, in sending Jesus to die on the cross was to save us from our sins and to give us a new heart, a heart after his, to fill our heart uh, and not just our head with his wisdom, that uh, his character would be on display in our lives. And that was only made possible because Jesus died on the cross. Uh, we didn't go to Bible college. We didn't study enough memory verses to, to attain this. Uh, it took God's son dying on the cross for our sins. I'm going to call the men forward to uh, pass out the elements uh, this morning. I'm going to call the worship team to uh, come forward and to uh, play a song or two. Uh, if you would hold the elements with me, uh, and we'll partake of them together. Uh, this week, I promise they'll be in the right order. If you were here for the last time, you understand. Uh, but as the men pass them out, uh, go ahead and hold the elements, and we will partake of those together. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, which reveals to us the contents of our own hearts, uh, Lord, and, and shows us afresh our need for you. Uh, is our tongue tameable? Uh, it is if you change our hearts. And Father, we ask for that this morning, Lord, that you would be uh, the one who touches our hearts today, Lord, and every day, and Lord, that your word would reign supreme in our own life, Lord, that we would acknowledge you as being above our own thoughts and our own desires, Lord, that we would desire the things that you desire, we ask these things in Jesus' name.